you can make things way less hierarchical, but you have to be aware that the hierarchy exists in the first place. Welcome to Curating Tools, a podcast which explores the practical aspects of curatorial work. Through conversations with some of the most prolific curators and art professionals in the creative sector, we aim to provide you with tools and advice to help you develop your curatorial practice. This podcast is brought to you by Call for Curators, a platform promoting professional opportunities since 2012 and Node Center for Curatorial Studies, the first e-learning platform for curators and art professionals founded in 2009. I'm your host, Maria Zinkir, and today I'm joined by Joe Rowley. Joe is an independent curator based in Göteborg, Sweden, and currently he is working as the producer for Göteborg International Biennial for Contemporary Art. Hi, Joe, and thanks so much for, for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, weather is good in Gothenburg today, which is always a treat. So <laughs> It's great to hear. So I'm joining from the, as usual, cloudy Glasgow, Scotland. Ah, um, I know it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you, one of your projects took place in Glasgow um, not so long ago, I think. Yeah, that was uh, just last year. Yeah, uh, Round Data Radio. Uh, which was curated in Glasgow by Feronia Venbury and Romy Danielowicz. Uh, so, yes, it's a public art project. It's a set of five uh, audio artworks by Glasgow-based artists that are connected to public transport routes in the city. So it's a pretty fun project. We have it here in Gothenburg as well. I did the first one here in Gothenburg in 2021. So, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So you, as I said, you also work for the Göteborg International Biennial for Contemporary Art. This project that took place in Glasgow here as well. These are very different, um, different projects. Can you tell our listeners uh, who are not, who might not be familiar with your practice, you know, uh, more about your work and how did you get to the place where you are at right now in your professional professional career? Yeah. Sure thing. Uh, yeah, so my my background actually is in art making. Uh, I started out doing a fine art BA at Nottingham Trent University in the UK, which was great. And then straight after that, uh, set up an artist-run space called Hut with uh, some friends, um, which uh, was open for about five years. So between 2014 and 2019, that was running. And in 2016, I escaped the UK and uh, came to do my master's here in, in Sweden, in Gothenburg. Again, in art making. Was here doing that for two years and then kind of came out of, of that in a position that I think quite a few people maybe find themselves in of sort of like, okay, I don't think I want to make art anymore. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I've been doing some curating uh, as well. I, I worked as the curator for UK New Artists uh, in 2016 and 17, which is like a, a national festival for young and emerging artists in, in the UK. And obviously I've been doing curating with, with Hut as well. Uh, and bits and pieces here in, in Sweden. So kind of just carried on in that direction. Uh, did the international curators program with Node and have never looked back. 
And uh, yeah, but now I'm I'm working for uh, Gothenburg International Biennial for Contemporary Art, shortened to Gibka. We're opening the 12th edition of the biennial this year, uh, which is curated by Joao Laya. It's going to be great. Everyone should come. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm the producer for it. So my, my job is mostly talking with the artists and venues, working out the practicalities. I'm also working with uh, a lot of the artist text which also kind of feeds into my job with Node, uh, where I run two programs. One, which is specifically to do with writing, editing, and ethics in exhibition texts. And the other one, which is brand spanking new, and we're like halfway through the course at the moment, uh, in its first go-through, is about the four fundamental texts that, we as art professionals have to kind of structure our professional life around a little bit in terms of CVs, in terms of bios, uh, exhibition texts, curatorial statements, press releases. Great, thank you so much. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, the first course uh, that you'll be teaching later, exhibition texts, writing, editing and ethics. It seems like a fascinating project, it's a fascinating topic and something that, you know, really pretty much all of curators have to double in. Uh, whether you work with kind of traditional exhibition format or other forms. And I'm really curious to hear from you, you know, more about what actually makes an exhibition text uh, in our contemporary landscape, because the information is distributed as well. Um, you find out about cultural events, uh, exhibitions online, in physical world as well. Um, and oftentimes they take a life of its own at some point. They, they can take so many shapes and forms right now. So what would you say is an exhibition text? What makes it? And what is its relationship to other sources of information? I mean, I think one of the one of the big things that I try and kind of reinforce during the the exhibition text course is that my my big belief is that exhibition texts are about supporting your audience to remember the idea of the show, right? I mean, mm. in all of these kind of mediated platforms, whether it's you know seeing the exhibition on Instagram or or seeing the exhibition on like Art Viewer or in a in a publication or going to the actual gallery, the preferable option. Um, <laughs> you're having that visual experience. You're ha you're engaging with the the sort of the object of the show, as it were. And I think the exhibition text should be there to sort of support the audience in understanding why you're doing this show, what it's about, what what this is, uh, and 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 remembering that idea. I think if if the show is is striking enough and strong enough as sort of like an object per se, then you would hope that your audience kind of remembers what it what it looks like, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that they remember the the concepts that you're you're working with within that show. So that's where the exhibition text, I think, really has to start doing the heavy lifting. With that in mind, I think it can be approached in a billion different ways and should be approached in a billion different ways. I think there's there's different strata of audience that you need to develop different versions of the exhibition text for, for example. 
and and in doing that you have to kind of frame it in different ways so it's kind of it's a big question (laughs) so you said something very interesting about um adjusting the exhibition text to to different audiences and can you kind of elaborate on that and also talk about the relationship between exhibition texts and different other different forms of interpretation in exhibitions i mean the the way that we talk about it in uh, in the course is using this metaphor of paddlers swimmers and divers uh, so you have you have paddlers who are sort of like your very general audience who perhaps don't have any real knowledge of of art have kind of just staggered into the gallery and are you know it's a a Saturday afternoon and they're looking for something to spend their time doing the information that you're giving to them uh, should be very different to the information that you're giving to say a diver who is perhaps like a PhD candidate who's you know working in a, a university curatorial or, or arts faculty and, you know, has this great store of knowledge and wants a much longer and deeper and more detailed and engaged sort of text. And that's that's where these academic sort of long form exhibition texts have their place. But equally, that's like 0.1% of your audience. Um, so it's kind of about working out where these different things are appropriate. And most of the time, I guess it kind of falls in the swimmers range, which is this like happy middle ground uh, where you're, you know, you're still presenting the information in in an accessible and engaging and relatively simple uh, to an extent way. But the ideas are in there and they're being elaborated on and you're kind of you're engaging with the audience. But I mean, I think the key thing to remember in all of these different layers is that it shouldn't be framed in terms of the intelligence level of the audience per se we're not looking to sort of uh, dumb it down uh, it's more about trying to understand how we explain ideas and sometimes people need a little bit more help in understanding certain things than other times it's an experiential thing as much as anything it's i don't think it's anything to do with intelligence that I think is kind of the key thing in in structuring these these different layers uh, of text, at least. Yeah, definitely. And kind of what you said about you know uh, presenting information in many different forms. To me, it seems like the exhibition text becomes, like you said, an object on of its own. Um, this kind of site of knowledge production. And I was wondering about how what's the role of an exhibition text in creating this pedagogical or dialogical space between the curator, artists, and the publics. Um, can you yeah, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's one of the, the key sites for that. I mean, an exhibition text is one of those things that you're almost always going to have within an exhibition, even if you don't have like work labels, for example, which are describing each individual work within the show, you're probably going to have some kind of more overarching text. And I think um, I'm a great believer that a huge part of the curator's job is actually a pedagogical role, Um, whether it's in terms of the work that you do with artists, in terms of nurturing their career, whether it's in terms of working with other curators to sort of mutually nurture each other's careers, 
or whether it's in terms of engaging with your audience. Um, we're not there to make them feel stupid. We're not there to tell them things. We're there to open a discussion with them. And, you know, I think that the best learning formats are always discursive. I mean, I think I, I would like to believe that we've moved away from uh, a, a sort of lecturer stands at front of class and tells you what you must write down in your notes kind of uh, way of, of teaching. And, you know, I think perhaps the the ongoing pandemic has kind of had an effect on that in terms of, you know, there's a lot more teaching online and there's a lot more distance uh, between educator and student. But I think there's still so much scope to continue that discursive platform, even with distance, which I think is something that Node has always been great at. But in terms of how we're addressing our audience as curators when they come into an exhibition space and see the text on the wall or in the piece of paper that they pick up or whatever, it's it's about sort of uh, understanding the the language and understanding the voice that we're presenting to them um, and understanding how I mean it's this this classic thing of talk to others as you would want to be talked to yourself right I don't want to be talked to like I'm a, a moron so I'm not going to talk to other people like they're a moron I don't want to be talked down to so I'm not going to talk down to other people like it's it just seems like you know fairly standard being a decent human thing yeah definitely and I think, I think you know I think in my experience the kind of the exhibitions that I enjoyed the most and the exhibition texts that kind of uh, yeah also um, taught me the most were those that I could relate to um, so you know they were kind of general enough that a lot of audience including myself even if I wasn't a specialist in the topic uh, could could kind of understand um, and relate to on my own life but at the same time, I think they should bring out the tools that audience already has um, and help the audience um, develop them or discover them in themselves, in their past experiences. Absolutely. I mean, we're all carrying around like these huge wealths of knowledge just that we've kind of accumulated over time. Not even sort of like, I mean, I don't want to get into the sort of like street knowledge versus book knowledge discussion but like uh you know it is this thing of like everyone is carrying around experiential knowledge uh that does that is the main thing that impacts how people understand art right there all of us look at, at these these objects or or whatever you know is filling the gallery space or not filling the gallery space through eyes which are sort of uh informed by by this experiential knowledge that that we're bringing into the space and i think yeah as you say having enough room uh within both the exhibition and the exhibition text for that knowledge to kind of find its own way into the space also is incredibly important the experiential knowledge that we would just just talk about this can also constitute a part of artists' practices. Um, curators and artists both can have very specialist niche knowledge, um, years' worth of research that can be uh, kind of transformed into one artwork or one exhibition. And I would lo love to hear from you, kind of, how do you 
condense all of this information into something that's um, that's manageable for for a general audience. And you know, how do you make justice not only to the audiences but also to the artists and the people you work with? Uh, I mean, I think part of it is sometimes understanding that you can't do that in one text, um, and you know, this is where the scope of things like work labels and however you want to manage that as a format. I mean, it doesn't have to be like a, a sticker on a wall kind of situation, but like h- how you're sort of mediating where people are finding certain pieces of information, which build up a, a picture is, is super important within sort of like huge group shows like that. I mean, it's something that we have to deal with, with the biennial, for example. And I mean, our biennial isn't that big. We're we're working with like twenty eight artists this year, which, in the context of like Venice, for example, is is nothing. It's like barely one pavilion. Uh, <laughs> um, so there are all of these different contexts that you have to kind of bear in mind, and all of these different contexts have. Uh, an impact on how you need to respond to structuring. There's not a sort of like one-stop shop uh, answer to the question in that sense. However, um, I think, again, to kind of go back to that idea of the exhibition text being this this thing that helps an audience remember the idea of the exhibition rather than what it looks like, for example, Um in that sense, I think it's not always super useful to have long descriptions of the artwork or what the audience is seeing descriptions in a sort of like audio describe kind of format that can help make the exhibition more accessible. However, in like the the general populace wall text or whatever, I don't think you need to do that. You're you're wasting valuable space, which you could be using on kind of constructing and framing these ideas, and and how how that knowledge should be shared and how that knowledge can be shared. Um, in sort of saying, ah, yes, this is an exhibition with paintings in it, and the paintings are green, and the green is made from mixing yellow and blue. And it's, uh, you know, I don't don't think anyone needs that information necessarily, unless it's sort of like, like that is the key sort of like the core idea of of the entire exhibition. Which it could Uh, be. Which which it could be. (laughs) In which case, yes, it absolutely should be in there. Um, But otherwise, like, no, you don't... you know, concentrate on on supporting your audience to understand why this is here. But I think you, you touched upon something interesting here. You know that um, all these ideas they don't necessarily have to be included in the exhibition text. But then, um, how do you develop your relationships with the artists that you work with? Because I can imagine a lot of artists. Uh, do want their I, very complex ideas to be translated and to be understood by by the audiences, the people who go to exhibitions. And you said one way of doing it is kind of thinking of other means of interpretation, like labels and, you know, other wall text. 
but how do you navigate this relationship and how do you kind of um, manage expectations on all the sides? This is something that I always sort of talk about when when framing um, like collaborative editing. And the same, I think, is true of any like collaborative working process. Like at the start of the process, be very open in sort of expressing exactly what the bounds of this thing are and what each party should expect from the other. Um, It just makes everything a lot easier. Like I'm, I'm not a big fan of like the sort of hiding information for the sake of like hiding information or like pseudo exclusivity or like uh, I have one agenda and and I don't need you to know it and every time that that has been the case in a working process that I've been involved in it's gone horribly wrong (laughs) so like I just don't see any point in it um so yeah I think just like being as honest with each other as possible and sort of saying you know it's a collaborative process working with with any artist as a curator or it should be and you know i would expect that as a curator you're spending time like talking with that artist about the work that they're they're making if they're alive if they're not alive then you're probably doing if you know you're reading around that to try and understand and frame out why they're doing these things and and that builds into the the way that you as a curator are framing the show uh i think as much as anything this is one of these steps in kind of moving away from this genius curator nonsense also of sort of like i am the curator and i am the only one who can sort of like tie these ideas together it's not accurate absolutely yeah absolutely i i totally agree with you um but i I also think that collaborative process there is always a power dynamic um, between the involved parties and depending on the content the context for instance you know if you work uh, in, an, in a big institution your relationship with the artists will be very different can be mediated by someone else as well but it's it's very good to hear from you kind of your approach for sure and I mean to sort of like touch on that mediation point as well Work processes are mediated because people allow them to be. It's a choice. Like it's the same with with hierarchies. I mean, something that another thing that comes up in the course always in both of the courses, in fact, is this thing of hierarchy and text. The idea of being completely non-hierarchical, I think, is completely impossible. There are always implicit hierarchies, and if you're sort of like sitting there going, "Ah, oh, but I'm non-hierarchical." Uh, I think it's a very good way of just blinding yourself to them instead of being aware of them and understanding how to manage them. You can make things way less hierarchical, but you have to be aware that the hierarchy exists in the first place and how to sort of like mitigate that and how to level that out a bit. And yeah, there is always still going to be sort of like a bit of this or a bit of that. It's never going to be completely equal. But there is scope to kind of lessen that and bring it into more of a sort of vague balance at least i think so i think one way of of imposing a hierarchy or, or this kind of different relationships uh in this collaborative process all but also communicating with audiences is the type of language that you use as a curator uh, and i'm really curious to hear your thoughts on you know the kind of art speak the international 
art english um that um you can come across quite often um in both institutional and museum gallery context and in other forms of art writing so yeah what's kind of your opinion like is it appropriate to use it when is it appropriate? i hate it <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, yeah, I hate it. I think it's, uh, sure, great, you know some big words. And uh, I think it's also a, a thing where it always moves with the zeitgeist. Uh, I've, I've noticed, for example, that uh, a lot of people are using inscribe at the moment. Everything is inscribed on everything else, which just makes me think of people walking around with like pen knives and carving it into everything all the time. It's very weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, international art English, uh, I think a lot of people are very aware of now. And I think uh, mm. there's a lot of moves within like larger institutions, definitely. Ironically, it feels like one of the few places that they're kind of leading from the front. In, in trying to kind of lessen the amount of international art English and art speak and, and excessively, you know, verbose language within their exhibition texts and within their work labels and, and trying to make it more accessible for audiences. It all kind of stems out of a research paper that Alex Rule and David Levine wrote in 2012 called International Art English. Um, which they, they basically took a whole bunch of um, online press releases from, from galleries uh, and sort of, I mean, it was a data collection exercise in, in the sense of they were counting how many times various words were coming up. And, you know, they point to all of these, these trends, which I think some of which have, have shifted uh, since then. I mean, it's what, 10 years ago now plus? Yeah, but I think things are changing slowly. But yeah, no, my my feeling on uh, on art English, as it were, is get rid, just get rid of it. Learn how to build ideas in 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 building blocks. I mean, I think this is something uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, like uh, my who would my favorite art writer be. Uh, and I was saying that I was struggling with that question, but like uh, one of the, and I'm, I'm looking at my bookcase and uh, was more sort of like, actually, no, I, I don't like a lot of art writers. I can't think of any art writers that I'm like, oh yeah, I really like love the way that they write. But there are other people on this bookcase that I'm sort of like, yeah, no, I really dig the way that they write. Like uh, John Gray, for example, who's a, a philosopher, the way that he structures and, and explains and builds ideas in these blocks uh, and, and the way that he structures his books as well tend to be these sort of like very quite concise chapters or sort of almost like vignettes of concepts which slowly build on top of each other until you kind of get to the end of the book and are like oh okay I get it <laughs> uh, but you've, you've gathered all of these little chunks along the way which are kind of semi-anecdotal or or frame it through some sort of metaphor that means that you kind of get the the bigger picture of why this thing actually is. And I think that's that's something that like international art English and, and those frames of like academic or pseudo-academic writing, um, they come in the way of that because they they're used as these kind of get out of jail free cards 
so that you don't have to explain anything. You can just sort of like put this word and yeah, sure, that'll do. Uh, I just don't like it. <laughs> Definitely, I think I think it also creates this kind of club. You know, the I guess unspoken rule of if you understand or appreciate it, you belong to a, cl- a certain kind of club. You know, in the arts world, a kind of sense of belonging. Uh, that I think is yeah totally false. Mm. But I think you mentioned um, interestingly, like the art. You said you don't really have any favorite art writers, or you don't don't read that much of art writing. But you mentioned philosophy instead. And uh, is this kind of an advice that you could give to people who are looking to improve their writing? You know, is um, yeah. specifically for like you know exhibition texts and uh, curatorial texts. Is this more about reading? the authors that you whose work you actually like to read in your own time as well yeah Yeah, I would say so and I mean I think it's also to do with reading broadly Mm. and being curious like I mean some of the best things that I've picked up in terms of like techniques for writing for example or, or thinking about how I can write in ways that can be clearer or can express ideas better or when I'm reading about something that I know absolutely nothing about. So, I mean, this is one of the joys of being a producer as well, is you're, you're kind of rubbing up against these, these artistic practices and the wealth of research that they come with. And then you have to try and catch up. <laughs> so it very quickly becomes this sort of information gathering exercise of sort of like, okay, but how, how does one test... A, a chemical compound to find out what the perfume elements are in there. What is that? And how does that process work? Oh God. You know, like I uh it's it's a it's a different world uh for me in a lot of ways. I think that that's also, you know, for especially for people who might be, you know, not native not native speakers like myself. Um I think reading these variety of different um books or articles on different kind of from different areas kind of enhances the vocabulary uh, so much like you said the chemistry example is is perfect like i would probably not be able to uh, talk a lot or write about chemistry without having you know read a lot of journal articles or consulted with artists who are exactly with. i mean you have to put in the hours on that site and i mean this is most of the reading that i do it's, it's kind of on the one hand it's it's a shame uh, in that i i I don't get to read much much fiction anymore, <laughs> um, but a lot of my like reading energy is spent with these these research tasks. But I kind of love it because you find all of these bonkers ways of writing and these these sort of slightly bizarre ways of framing things. I mean, particularly in things like in science texts, especially actually, like the way that they use language is very specific. Uh, and you kind of you almost have to read around the reading to try and just work out okay but what are they actually talking about here i get this as well in terms of uh, like uh, my partner for example is an engineer who works in chemical engineering which is convenient at the moment uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've, I've given her things to read from like the art world and she's just like i mean what is this what does any of this even mean <laughs> so it's you know there's, there's there's this alien language coming in in both directions i like i think it's good to be aware of that but yeah i mean reading widely and just being curious i think being curious about how people express their ideas is always a good thing in, in learning how to write 
Um, speaking of alien languages, um, one of the projects that you're involved with, uh, Ephemeral Care, I noticed that um, you did an interview with um, The White Pube, uh, which is a duo comprised of Gabriel de la Puente and Zarina Muhammad, and they do art criticism in a very interesting way. But what I'm very interested in is their language, because they use kind of the language that you find online. They use, you know, emo emojis uh, as part of their text, very kind of informal language. What do you think about it and kind of like how how is your relationship with very informal language or one that experiments with you know, online internet uh, slang in the art world? context i think there should be space for it I, i i'm a big believer in that i mean i think i think the white pube have, have done an excellent job in kind of opening up that discourse and really sort of like presenting this this notion of of art criticism as i mean it's a nonsensical language anyway the language of art criticism so why can't it be this supposedly nonsensical language that actually people are using. Um, so in terms of, I mean, decolonizing and also in queering and also in just entirely reframing the way that we think about the arts profession, what, what they have been doing over the past, I mean, they've been going for, must be nearly 10 years now, So, I mean, they've been going for quite a while and, and you know, they're they're getting good good traction these days. Uh, yeah, it's it's important work and they're still hammering away at it, uh, which I also think is is very impressive in its own right. Now, do you think there's space for such language in exhibition spaces, in exhibition texts? I think there can be, yeah. I mean, why not? I, it depends on the context. I think, I, you know, yeah. as as with all things, it depends on... What's what's the exhibition about? Who's the who's the artist? What are they about? There's all of these different kind of uh, variables almost that you have to bring into the process when you're thinking about how you're writing anything. It it can't always be a case of okay, well, I'm always going to use the same form of language. And I mean, I think this is something that institutions struggle with a lot in terms of there's always this desire to have an institutional voice. And yeah, you totally should sort of try and maintain some kind of institutional voice but there also needs to be space for play within that the ways that uh index up in in stockholm for example the ways that they kind of are looking at how text is this sort of like pliable material that they're always kind of messing with in every exhibition that they open and every exhibition that they propose and and even the screenings and sort of like public program talks everything it's sort of there's always this ongoing conversation about okay well what is the access point here how how are we framing this and i think that's super valuable as something to kind of carry with you in, in terms of yeah it's it's sort of more work in in one sense but it's totally worth it slang new vocabularies different vocabularies all should totally have their place within that uh, i don't think there's any question of that what you said about exhibition and being playful with the exhibition text that's uh, interesting and I was wondering is that playfulness that could be kind of combined with exhibition design that I guess what forms of exhibition text have you seen that um, you know made impact on you or things that you would recommend people can to experiment with 
I mean, I think one thing that I always do think is that the like the wall vinyl has become a massive crutch, and I think that is mm. something that. I mean, it's not necessarily a strategy of sort of like, ooh, this is some new technique that I've seen, but I think it's a technique that I see too often, and which it it presents this very sort of static relationship to the viewer, I think, um, and and to the audience, and to the artworks also. I mean, in terms of how you're using the like the spatial elements within whatever you know, physical place the the exhibition is happening in, be that like an exhibition room or be that an entire city. Uh I think there there has to be a consideration of how you're guiding a viewer around that space. And in, in terms of like locating a very static object which is sort of the a Bible almost of sort of like this is the you know the the tome you must read for this exhibition i just don't i don't think that it's productive all of the time and i mean also in terms of like the the temporality of the space it dictates the way that people spend their time uh within the exhibition uh particularly if it is a, a, an extremely complex or unclear exhibition text it can either i think it either does one of two things you end up with people who are stood looking at that text for way too long and not looking at the work, or you have people who look at that text very briefly and then go and look at the work in a sort of like, oh, I don't even understand what this is about kind of sense. Or you forget about text by the time you get to the artwork. Yeah, exactly. And then it's just sort of like, oh, okay. So, yeah, there's all of these sort of like non-static things that I think we have to bear in mind in terms of, how exhibition texts can work for audiences and and maybe that is a case of like i mean i've never been a great fan of like the audio guide format in a in a museum for example i i I think that's also a bit weird but like are there ways of thinking about how you know audio or how splitting the exhibition text or how even sort of like I'm, i'm a much bigger fan of you know having some sort of publication that goes along with the exhibition where the that text sits be that publication you know an actual sort of like piece of paper that you walk around the gallery with or whether it's you know we we experimented with this a few shows ago at Rödersten Rödersten Konsthalle is is where Gibke is based out of here in Gothenburg where we had uh, like QR codes at the front desk where you come in and you, you could you could scan the QR code to get a digital version of it so you could read the the like exhibition guide on your phone and also then take it home with you on your phone. Which I mean for for me as someone who ends up with like piles and piles of paper all around my house of like these exhibition texts that I've been sort of like, oh I should probably save this and like take it home and then never look at it again. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's like uh, <laughs> I usually go through a purge of my <laughs> yeah yeah I need to do another purge again soon I think also uh, <laughs> um, so yeah there's there's all of these different which I mean they're not even particularly radical methods of doing it another one that we've tested recently was having it as like a scrolling text on screen um, which also like it dictates a different kind of temporality 
between the audience and that text, which has its pros and cons. I mean, obviously, there's access issues with that in terms of, you know, reading speeds, dyslexia, things like that. However, uh, I think it also encourages a kind of motion and a kind of like, okay, there, there, there should be a more kind of urgent relationship with the material somehow. Um, and I think these kind of subliminal things that you can do with text uh, and that you can do with the presentation of text or the presentation of information more generally are quite interesting things to play with within, within exhibition spaces. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, thinking about the temporality um, of exhibition text or exhibition interpretation, like you, you mentioned the piling uh, exhibition text uh, in, you know, at your house that you collect, you never look back at. But at the same time, I think, you know, as curators, we want to preserve the text and our work and we want it to be discoverable mm. in the future. So, yeah, just kind of looking to the future. Do you think all exhibition texts should be uh, preserved, you know? Um, are, there, are there times where you don't have to? You shouldn't? I, I really don't think you should be that precious about them. They they naturally kind of get preserved on, on your computer anyway, uh, and they're preserved on the internet and stuff like that. I mean, it's not like they just disappear uh, out of hand, but I think also... And I think this is actually a kind of lesson for any writing that you're doing, be it an exhibition text or like your bio or a magazine article or a review or anything. Like, I mean, you're going to write another one. Uh, there's there's always going to be another one to do at some point. Your bio especially should be, and probably your, your curatorial statement actually on this matter as well, they're, they're working documents. Like you should constantly be sort of like tweaking them and changing them. And I think with exhibition texts, thinking about your exhibition texts in sort of, they are these discrete objects. And yeah, they're worth holding onto as like digital archive things, perhaps, in terms of it's nice if you're the kind of person who likes to, you know, go back through their career and, and reminisce over what what great ideas you've had. I mean, I, I don't like doing that particularly. Not in the sense of like not being reflective, because I don't think that's being reflective. Um, being reflective is a very different process. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's a super useful thing. And I think over-preciousness with these things can also become a hindrance in, in producing text that's actually like valuable for an audience or or relative or relevant rather to to the exhibition or the context or whatever it is uh and also just in terms of like your own working time like i think you're totally right that we need to be considerate of our and other people's time as well and um and with this precious advice i think we can uh, <laughs> conclude this conversation <laughs> and, um yeah thank you so much joe for joining me today uh, and uh, to everyone who's listening right now um, yeah and uh, exhibition text writing editing and ethics is led by Joe Rowley for note center for curatorial studies it's an online course check it out yes chat with Joe Moore and learn from his amazing uh, experience and get his amazing <laughs> advice from there as well yeah thank you for now thank you so much